episode is going to revolve around Anthony Jack's book, The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students. Um, we have a group of third and fourth years today discussing the book since it was um, an assignment given to us. And we just have a couple of questions. Everyone's going to go around and introduce themselves. As you guys may recognize, um, I'm Regina. I'm a third year majoring in Spanish and Portuguese. And I'll let everybody else introduce themselves as well. Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Jose Garcia. And I'm a third year. I'm a quantitative science major with a sociology concentration. My name is Jessica. I'm a fourth year, Oxford continuing. I'm an MBB major on the pre-med track. Arturo, I'm a third year as well. And I'm studying information systems and Spanish and Portuguese. Okay, so we have a couple of questions um, just to kind of talk about the book, the main points of the book. Um, so to just give a little bit of background, uh, Anthony Jack talks about two different groups um, in these uh, elite spaces, the privileged poor and the doubly disadvantaged. And so that everybody has kind of um, an idea of, of his definitions for these the privileged poor are students who have had access to higher education institutions, particularly private schools, before stepping into, into universities. So um, that's his definition for it. There's a specific one in the book, but that's just kind of a summary of it all. Now, for the doubly disadvantaged, those are students who have not been in, um, have not encountered elite institutions before coming to college, um, also, you know, considered low income. The privileged poor, a side note, um, does not mean that those are um, not low income students. They are also low income students. They just have had different opportunities. But the doubly disadvantaged are the ones who kind of go into college a little bit blind to what the situation in the system is. Um, so just so that everybody has a little bit of a background on that. And our first question is, prior to reading this piece, how did you describe your experience as a first-gen college student to people around you? Was it similar to Jack's descriptions, or did he tell a new experience you unknowingly related to? Anybody can go first um, for that question. Uh, well, I felt like the story really did relate to the way I described it to people around me. It's like the way it was kind of frightening or intimidating to go to office hours or just like how sometimes you felt isolated or out of place because like people were talking about like going to weekend trips like to Texas or something while you're like over here just can't go anywhere because the trips be expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, but I think something Jack did do in his descriptions was like give us a language to describe these and kind of almost like a an avenue for like, oh yeah, it's not just us. I agree, and I definitely think that, um, like you just said, there's now a new language to talk about these two different groups, which I think have always been there, but there was no way to describe them. At least for me personally, I had the experience of doing public school my entire life, and I did public school my first two years of high school, but I did private school the last two years, so being able to see a little bit of both in myself was very interesting. Um, so I don't think I fully defined with one or the other, but I was able to bridge that connection. 
and like more be more articulate basically about about those experiences and the differences between them yeah um i totally agree i don't think i i really like what you said jose about the fact that you finally have a language to to describe your experience because before it was kind of just like oh it felt like a really long story almost like you were giving people these long stories of like yeah i went to private school or oh no i went to public school or blah 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 but like yes i'm here but i'm poor yes i'm here but i'm not poor. it's just a whole like confusing you know like um situation so to finally have like these terms um for people to to use um, is really nice and I guess in a way hopefully it becomes more um, embedded in like people's everyday language I feel like if you haven't read the book then you, you're probably like privileged poor like what does that mean or doubly disadvantaged like what does that mean but to those who have read the book or have at least some knowledge of like the premise of the book um, I think it it makes for for good conversation among people so Okay, so going on to the next question, how do you guys perceive the concepts of privileged poor and doubly disadvantaged that um, Jack used in his book? Do you see them as polar opposites or the lines are somewhat blurred between these terms? Yeah, so I guess for me, it was really nice to have these two and I feel like they're really not the same. I feel like they're two ends of a spectrum. So you have the doubly disadvantaged, which is like zero experience to like elite institutions. And then you have the privileged poor, which is like 100%. Or just a lot of experience with the elite institutions. And there's just like a lot of space in between them. I, I totally agree. I like that you gave, you made it like a spectrum. I think that's, um, you know, like a good way to put it in like, I guess like easy terms almost. Um, I definitely don't, uh, I guess in like some ways, you know, the lines can be blurred because like for the privileged poor and the doubly disadvantaged, like the privileged poor, yes, they have some experience in the elite institutions, but they still experience some of the same things that the doubly disadvantaged experience. So they might come from low income families or do come from low income families. Um, they experience racism, they experience, you know, um, all these different things and they're very similar, it's just like one little thing or one aspect of the privileged poor that's like different from doubly disadvantaged. And like while I was reading it, um, I thought it was interesting because like at one point I was the doubly disadvantaged and then I became the privileged poor. Um, but I still like, I don't, I don't know, I don't like to like use them that much to like define my experience because I feel like it's such a weird experience, but you know. I definitely agree, like, seeing it, like, as a blur, because it's, like, to me, when I think of a spectrum, I think of a line and placing it somewhere on that line, but, like, you can be both or happen one and then the other later, and it's, like, or you could be one and still be the another one at the same time, and it's, like, a different point, and it's, like, not one person is, or not one first-gen individual is the same in these experiences, so I feel like it's important in different areas, so I can see, like, to me, it's more like a blur. Mm -hmm. I agree with you guys. I think the advantage of seeing it as a spectrum is that it can be both. So you can have those polar opposites where if you've grown up um, having the advantage of having a private school education your entire life, you may be that. But you may also have come from a public school that was one of the good public schools that had 
smaller class sizes and we had a counselor for this. So there's definitely like moving up and down that spectrum and, and having a combination of both. It can be both these poet offices are also somewhere in the middle where the line isn't particularly clear. Yeah, and I guess like one point I'd like to make, at least I feel like with the privileged born doubly disadvantaged, it really feels like it's just like one point of the story. Like, it, I feel like it really deals with how students navigate the institution, but there's like a lot of other aspects that they still do blur, like family issues or mm -hmm. like socioeconomic backgrounds, like how much money they got and stuff. And I think that's kind of where like the lines are blurred. Yeah, I definitely, because it's like this past, this past week I've been thinking a lot about like, like being first gen low income and being like, you know, it's like where I put myself on there. And then also thinking like, but then again, there are other first gen low income Latinos who experience different things from me too. And it's just like, it goes, I guess, to me, it goes back to that blurry line where it's like, we're both this, but then where our backgrounds come from, from like our family household, where we live in the U.S. or maybe outside the U.S., like where we live in general, like those play like, like I guess more external factors or other factors that play a, a huge role. Yeah, I remember one of the stories in the book, it was like, this girl was... I think considered, I don't remember her name, and I'm sorry, but um, this girl, she was considered to be, you know, privileged poor, but, you know, she came from a, from a neighborhood that was very much, like, very violent. Um, she had lost a friend to, like, gun violence, and, um, you know, that's something that, like, somebody in, like, the doubly disadvantaged probably experienced as well, you know, like, in that category. So, like you said, it's, like, they're, now you give them these two different categories, they're like, one's privileged poor and one's doubly disadvantaged, but they have, they probably have like this common experience of like, that doesn't necessarily have to be gun violence, but you know, um, mm -hmm. like a hardship that they share, which is like kind of reverse to like what you were saying, is like, you're Latinx and low income, and there's another person who's Latinx, low income, but they probably have like, you guys probably have different like hardships, Yes. Yeah. you know, so. And I'm glad like this is one of the questions you bring up because it's like it opens like a whole different discussion. Like it opens this discussion mm -hmm. up and like helps us view how every individual, especially being person, is different and understanding like where we come from. So moving on to the next question, did you also experience a culture shock, feelings of isolations or social constraints when you first came to Emory? And why or why not? Um to me, I feel like coming to Emory was so different. One, like coming to like a more urbanized area because I'm like from the rural south. And there is a difference in like rural southern white and then urbanized southern white. And I think to me that was a complete culture shock. Like sometimes like I would like coming to school, I was like, wait, hold up. You're driving a Porsche? Yeah. You're driving a Mercedes? That's like, that was so different to me. Um, but then again, also like where I lived was like a low income area. And so college in general was a whole different, like, it was shocking to me because back in high school, like at least I had, because it was small, I had a sense of development or like a relationship with my uh, professors. I mean, not professors, my teachers. And then coming to Emory, I feel like it was more to me intimidating because it's like, one, I was like lost. I don't know what I'm doing. Two, I was told that like this goes back more to office hours. It's like office hours are meant for you to ask questions, not to get, not to know your professor. 
And so to me, that was like totally different than what I had back home. And so I guess that just describes my like, my culture shock, like coming here. And at times it felt isolating, but then I found like my individual communities, like my first gen community and my Latinx community and other communities that like I identify with. And sometimes like once I integrate. Um, I, it's so weird because like, I think because of where I went to school, um, I've, I've talked about it before in previous episodes, but I went to private school and I think it was expected for me to just kind of like integrate and like figure, like know how to, everything works. Right. And, and in terms of like office hours and talking to professors, like I knew how that worked, but in terms of like the social life and like getting involved in organizations and everything, it definitely felt isolating because I've been at my school since middle school. I've been there for years. So everybody knew me. Everybody knew the activities I was involved with. Um, you know, I was used to receiving praise from various teachers and people in administration for the work that I had done there. And so for me to come into Emory, which is like obviously not like a huge school, but it's also not a small school, you know, it's like you have undergrad and then you have grad students and you have the nursing students, you have all these different schools and so it's, it feels a lot bigger. And so for me, it was like, I literally don't know like where to insert myself because I was so used to just like, oh yeah, like everybody knew me and everybody knew what I was doing and, and like everybody associated me with like this one thing or, or um, you know, this activity. And so that was where I felt like really I don't know if I would say like isolated. I just felt very like overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that would be like, I'm not, it's not necessarily like a culture shock, but definitely felt overwhelmed and, and um, just kind of lost the entire time. I don't think I experienced culture shock in the way that you did, Arturo. Um, but maybe a little bit with like the international students. I didn't expect so many international students um, to be here and the way that they talk about like where they come from like oh yeah like I've been here here and here and I'm like oh my gosh like that's so cool like I had heard that before from like people that I grew up with but it was different because like I had known them for so long and you know these people you meet them like once or twice and you know that's it so that was my experience yeah it's I feel like the people talking about like trips here and there I feel like that's a very common one and I feel like yeah it's different in the sense that it's like it feels like everyone here is talking about that and it's just strangers and stuff because I know like my first day at Emory was during the pre-orientation program SOAR with Outdoor Emory I went horseback riding did you like it? Sorry. Did you like it? <laughs> yes, it was amazing. Oh, that's so nice. It was very chill. I've never been in a horse, but you know. That's cool. Channeled by ancestors. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, but yeah, so on the drives there, like to places, the students would just like talk about all these trips or just like the schools they went to, and it's like they did all these IB projects, they like interviewed professors. And I went to a, not the best public schools. Like one of those schools where the teachers really have to like fight for your attention just because of other students in the classroom. And it's just like hearing all those stories of like how great their school kind of seemed. I was like, dang, it made me sound like I'm out here like from when you had junior or something. <laughs> it made me feel pretty out of place. And I was like, dang, like maybe I don't belong there. Like, and it like started that imposter syndrome kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, 
And yeah, that's like the main thing. Those kind of things are what I experienced. But I think like Arturo made a very good point where it's all about finding your communities on campus and getting that solidarity with people that are like you and that have similar backgrounds. And it could be multiple communities. Like we do have multiple identities, which I think has been a reoccurring thing here. And it's all about like finding those intersections and where the lines are. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have like that diversity. I can't yeah. imagine myself just sticking to like one friend or like one group. Yeah. Like that'd be so tiring. And like being around like all of these different groups, it's like, yeah, like I'm learning like like from Jose. I didn't know that was your first time horseback riding, you know? Yeah. But now I know. And then like I'll go to another group and I'll learn they learned this thing in class. And it's like it's so nice to be able to like, you know, share and like learn from each other. I think that's Awesome. I think it's like very important, like you said, like expanding and like knowing, well, like identifying communities by having various communities because I feel like they then open a whole different system of resources that, like, at least for me, it's like I didn't know like these are resources available until like I joined or became part of LSO or Austin Prime First Gen. And then I was like, wait, wait, well, what? And so, like, that just opens more. And then I feel like as first gen students from college, like, that is something that maybe like at least like for me that's something i lacked was resources mm -hmm. coming like from a title one school um which is like title one school just in like everyone's like 70 percent or more of the students there were like low income and so we didn't have enough resources like whatever we had we had and so coming here i was like i didn't know this until i joined this org or i was a part of this organization for some time and finding things outside of emory as well um i think had like our beneficial i think that's what's important for like expand on communities and like embrace identities that you have and identify with and it's nice to have multiple support systems as yeah. well because you know you might have like your friends back home but you know they're living different lives or um you have like one friend like i have you for example Arturo. like i can't just dump everything on you because you have other things going on you know mm -hmm. what i mean and so it's nice to have like various people supporting you and being there for you and because everyone like again everyone has their own life so not everyone can just like focus their time on you mm -hmm. it's nice to have like different places to go to and people to go to i'm thinking about culture shock now so when i when you first mm -hmm. asked the question i was like i don't think so i think i was ready especially because transitioning from the public school to the private school midway through high school it was very crazy time for me. I mean, to begin with, it was taking all these public transportations to get to the private school because I lived away on the other side of town. And then when I finally got my car, I remember every morning was such an interesting ride to school because I would wake up and it would be like the lady selling the tamales in the corner of the mm -hmm. store, the worker standing in the corner store waiting for work. And then as my one hour ride progressed, it was like, the big houses, the gated communities, and it's like, you felt that transition. So I was like, you know, the culture shock I was ready for. Like the trips everyone goes on, the different lifestyles. But now I'm thinking, going back to what you said much earlier about like international student, I now have friends that are from Cuba, that are from um, Ecuador, that are from all these different parts of the world, and some of them are international, some of them are not. I think that was the like more culture shock, like the knowing you're Hispanic, but like from a whole different world yeah. than you were, like yeah. I grew up in. Um, so now it's like, and I'm like, I'm thinking like, what are the different forms of culture shock that 
perhaps I hadn't accounted for, but I think that's the one thing. Um, as far as feelings of isolation, I think I resonate with a lot of what everyone said here about feeling like you had to find yourself again almost and like your group of friends and like where where do you fit in with all of that so I think at first it's like very lonely until you start joining organizations and you meet people and you're like okay like we share something in common like, we don't share anything in common but like you know you still feel the vibe so I think it's um, very interesting to think about it now that you guys have all said something about it. I was going to say like the like going back to what you said, like the whole international Latinx students and then domestic Latinx students, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a whole different, like, how's that whole different topic? Like, <laughs> something just, we covered in another episode. Yeah. <laughs> you should check it out. <laughs> um, but like moving on to our next question, um, so how do you think other non-Persian students can support Persian students and help foster a more like welcoming environment? Essentially, it's like asking like, what would we like to see from other non? Mm-hmm. non-first-gen students. Kind of reminds me of a reading we did about how faculty can support students, and mm-hmm. I feel like a bit of that can kind of carry over, where it's like, it'd be nice to see like non-first-gen students just be aware that first-gen students are on campus, and it's probably more prevalent than you think, and just being courteous of that, yeah, or maybe even doing a bit of reading or research into it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like a good way like for us to get faculty and staff members to know what first gen is, or like the topic of first gen, and I feel like that helps. It's like a, I don't know how to, I think, lack of better word, like a monkey see, monkey see, monkey do, in the sense that like the teacher's right there, the faculty, like the main person everyone listens to, right? And even them just bringing something up or anything that deals with first gen. So like first, for, for example, first gen week, right? Mm-hmm. Like having... I would like to see like professors at least just mentioning that once, like during lectures before or during the week. Just like, you know, like there are first-gen students here at Emory. And I feel like to me, like just going on that, like how faculty can like how they can help with getting to know and fostering like this environment of that it's like a safe space, a safe environment, or like an environment where we can express ourselves as first gen and not be not be afraid to be first gen. I definitely think when professors acknowledge our presence, and I think, like you said, students follow or at least make some, like, note of it. Like, I I mentioned this in one of our conversations before as, like, our whole cohort, but um, I remember I'm, or I'm currently in a class with a professor who at the beginning of her, like, the first thing on her syllabus was an acknowledgement of the fact that we're on like Native American land, you know, and, like, and it was just like describing like what group was here and like, you know, it, I remember it just being one of those things that I, I was like, wow, like she really took the time to do this and like put it in the syllabus and it's there. Like the syllabus is, you, you look at it almost every day. It's one of your readings. You know who I'm talking about? Is it Dr. Yanakaki? Yes. Uh, shout out to like that class. Like, just for having <laughs> the acknowledge because that's the type of things like when you give a knowledge, acknowledge it for, some, for, for something, especially as like a person who has, I don't know, like who has a position, like I, I those more, I guess, like authority in the classroom mm-hmm. and like, then that like reconciles in your mind. And I feel like yeah. to me that's still like sticks in my mind too. Yeah, and like I don't know, it might seem like a really small thing to other people, but to me it was like one of those things that I was just like, wow, like the professor 
is really, you know, taking the time to like get to know like where this school is being built and just, I don't know, it, it really, I felt like it, it was just so like, I don't want to say comforting, but it was just like really nice to see. Mm -hmm. So like you said, for first gen week, like if professors are like, guys, like happy first gen week, like this is what it means to be first gen, students are going to hear it one day. And if you're a freshman, you're going to hear it for the next four years, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a sophomore, the next three. And so it just becomes, and then they become aware, like unintentionally or whatever. Um, and I know that I, like, I have friends who are not first gen and I became friends with them because they were like aware of what first gen is, you know what I mean? Because they had done the research and they had looked outside of like their bubble or, you know, their... Um, socioeconomic class or their um, racial group or whatever um, and that's something like when they go ahead and like do the first step of like educating themselves I always think that that helps in you know making us feel included. I think that's the first step to supporting first-gen students the conversation the being aware that you can do your own research but um, just being aware that there are first-gen students and what struggles or what differences um, they may have for me is very important. And I think that that also emphasizes why having a diverse group of friends is important. Or if you like in your classrooms, actually getting to to look around and, and see, you know, who's like me, who's not like me, like meeting other people and, and having conversations about these sort of things. And I think another thing maybe it's like, maybe these students can keep other students accountable. Mm -hmm. Just because I know, like one of my friends was like with a group of like non-first gen students and one of them brought up like their ten million dollar their dad's ten million dollar company and you know <laughs> that could as a first gen student when everyone's talking about stuff like that you can feel a little excluded. And when my friend's other friend who was not first gen but is aware of these issues found out that that happened, he like kind of like pulled him off to the side or like later just told them, it was like, yeah, this is kind of the issue, this is the situation. It's something to be aware of. So I think that's another thing I can do. Yeah. Also, isn't it like rude to talk about money and salaries and all that stuff? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, like if you're in a workplace, I've heard like, there's so many like different things, but like when you're in a workplace, I've heard that like you should check what other people's, or try to check what other people's salaries are so that you're not getting like, you know, yeah, finesse. <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. I feel like in a school setting, it's like, why are we like? I don't need to like, know. right? Like, I don't need to like. Okay, cool. Like, I don't want to know if your your parent looks like a famous actor or something, but not necessarily yeah. like, you know, like. Well, I think what bugs you about that sort of comment, or at least for me personally, yeah. is that you said it loud enough for others to hear. Like, you yeah. needed other people to yeah. know that you have that amount of money and that you have that advantage. It's kind of like you're flexing, right? Yeah. Like, and that's when you're like, mm. I'm like, are you really? <laughs> like people, you notice like people that are rich don't talk about the fact that they're rich. Like Jay-Z, for example, that man dresses so <laughs> simple. And like, you know, like when he started off his career, he was all like chains and gold and all this stuff. And now this man walks around in like a black t-shirt and jeans. Like, <laughs> You know, and but we know that man has money, you know, like we know that he's established and like, so I don't know, that's just my two cents.
Well, that's another topic for another day. For another day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and last question, guys, just so that we can be done and out of here. What are some takeaways from the reading that you think would benefit the younger members in Harding First that didn't read the book? So, as a reminder, only third and fourth years read this book. Um, the first and second years have not, but they are obviously welcome to read it if they would like to. I think the very simple one is to get the ball rolling would be like the vocabulary used in the book, mm -hmm. like the privilege for and the doubly disadvantage, just like also giving them that language to kind of describe their own stories and stuff like that. I also think, so for those of you who haven't read the book, um, the interview process that he includes in here where he talks to a doubly disadvantaged student or a privileged um, student, you, a privileged for student, I'm sorry. So after he does that, I think getting able to see the responses of all of them, my main takeaway from that was there's no one big group for what defines a first-gen student either. A first-gen student can look so many different ways and possess so many different experiences and attributes and levels of income. I mean, that's just like scratching the surface of that conversation, but um, as first generation, you can have a variety of, of upbringings and being able to advocate for yourself is so very important because through his book, I think he was able to advocate for students at Renowned and make some changes. So just being aware that you don't have to fit a certain criteria and that you can speak up and and let others know what what changes you'd like to see. I think my biggest takeaway for the reading, like it combines both your yours, like in the terms of terminology, but also the interviews. So it gets a sense of like that like he didn't make this up, like he's getting this information mm -hmm. from someone, you know? And I think that's just like important to like to know about this reading. But also too it's like I feel from this, at least for me, and like, I guess advice would be like having and being in a place and environment where it's like a culture of belonging. And I feel like that starts with one diverse, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I feel like once that's established at like an Emory overall, I feel like when it becomes, it's getting there, it's progressing. Mm -hmm. But how to progress there, I think it's knowing that we're put into an institution that has a sets of values that's probably outdated or so far back that that's so far back that it's not up to date with like what the new diverse incoming students majority not majority who are first gen who are um identifying as minority groups and i think recognizing that and then providing an environment that can meet like a culture like sets of values that meet the minority groups would definitely help so i think that's just my takeaway um, I would say that my biggest takeaway that I think um, needs to be like a constant reminder to everyone is that we're not alone in this, you know? Um, literally everybody who is first gen experiences more or less a similar situation. Obviously, you know, because we're unique in the way we were raised, in the area we were raised, the teachers we encountered, like, Everyone's going to have, that's going to be different, but more or less, like, the struggles that we're having are very similar. They can be, you know, financially related issues, um, social issues, just talking to professors, that is a very, you know, 
common issue. And so I think like remembering that there are people who have gone through similar things that you're going through currently and, you know, have come out on the other side and um, have done it. And, you know, now they're here to, like Anthony Jack is first gen and now he's writing these books. And like you said, Jessica, advocating for other students that are like him and clearly, you know, not much is, not much has changed from when he was in college and just hoping that like his work um, enables some change, but just that reminder that, you know, like your experience, like you don't have to suffer through it alone. Like there are other people that are there and that can be with you through it and have, have advice to give, mm -hmm. um, which I think is like, the great thing about this group is that like we have the mentorship program, you know, and we're able to, for us as third and, you know, I guess like a fourth year, um, we're able to share like the things that we've gone through and like what worked for us or what didn't work for us so that they can have better experiences maybe than from what we've had. Mm -hmm. I think that that might be the biggest thing for me. Yeah, I, I agree. And definitely like even with this program, even being like recently, like not even two years or almost two years, mm -hmm. I think we've come a long way and like continue, like the progress we've done, like one with this podcast, with the mentorship program, continuing continuing this program for third and fourth years mm -hmm. just shows like that community is building and like for people who haven't like read the book or just in general like first gen who haven't like heard that sense of comfort words like we're here mm -hmm. this program and like other first gen communities on campus are here for that too all right thank y'all so much for listening for everyone here for being a part of the group and we are actually, this is only the first part of um, this, this episode. So we're gonna, this is episode two, part one. We're going to have a part two coming out um, in about two weeks um, with a different set of, of people to discuss um, other questions about the book. So please tune in, um, in, the, next, in the next episode. And thanks again. Also, one more thing. This is going to be released on... First Gen Week, so happy First Gen Week to every First Gen individual at Emory, outside of Emory, faculty, staff, members, student, anyone who's First Gen. Anyone who's helped out First Gen and is yes. advocating for First Gen. Thank you, thank you, thank you.